How are you, Greg? Not bad, Justin. It's good to see you. Nice to see you, if only virtually. Are you staying safe and indoors and behaving yourself? Asymptomatic. All right. Um, we have a guest with us today, uh, Dr. Christine Blackburn. Uh, Dr. Blackburn, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Thanks for being with us, as we'll uh, get to. I think it's a very kind of, it's a timely episode for you to be with us. Um, and so I think we can, uh, I think we'll be able to have some interesting conversations. Before we uh, jump on our to-do list for the evening, would you mind giving uh, the viewers just a little bit of background about you? You joined us back in the spring when the pandemic was new to us, but it may have been some time uh, since viewers uh, have been acquainted with you. So could you give us just a little bit of background information on yourself? Sure. Um, I am the Deputy Director of the Pandemic and Biosecurity Policy Program um, at the Bush School. And I'm kind of unique in that my PhD is an interdisciplinary doctorate. So I did political science communication and veterinary clinical sciences. Um, and my work on my dissertation was understanding how we can incorporate the social elements, like what human beings do um, with the biological elements of pandemic response to hopefully craft more effective pan pandemic response. So something that reduces death rates and economic impacts. So you knew people were going to have problems with masks before the rest of us knew it, huh? I guess so, sort of, yes. <laughs> Humans are unpredictable. That's true. That's true. There are some parallels, I believe, that I read uh, from the pandemic in the early 1900s of some of the similar public backlash and frustration with masks and different types of measures in place. So I think if, if my understanding is right, we're seeing some of that play out again. Yeah, it's amazing how much how similar it is. I guess if you read the accounts from 1918, 1919, you see people out in the streets protesting the wearing of masks and um, you know the social distancing kind of caving to public pressure um, and all of that happening kind of like it is now. So that's really fascinating. hundred years later, we're still doing similar things. Wow. Greg, do we learn from history? You're the, you're the history buff. Do we learn? No. <laughs> well, with that in mind, um, I was getting prepared for today, and as part of getting prepared, I visit Twitter. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, conversations <laughs> going on. I'm not sure the quality of them are always great, but you do get a pulse of where the conversation is. And, oh, my uh, Lord. You get, yeah. a, you get a pulse of people with nothing better to do. Well, that's, that's true. That's true. I don't, I don't know anyone who, uh, who's on Twitter who has better things to be doing, actually. None at all, right? But what I learned is uh, today's vo uh, National Voter Registration Day and social media is trying to raise awareness uh, for folks to vote. Um, and so there are a number of resources out there if uh, wherever you are, um, particularly if you're in the US, um, it's getting close to deadlines for registration. So if you haven't yet, make sure you get registered and vote in the fall, early November. All right. Only Greg. once, only, only once though. Only vote once. Please, please only once. Yes. Please, please only once. No matter like what. We usually do. Yeah, just vote once in your yeah. in your. No district. matter what the president of the United States says, just vote once. <laughs> it's a felony to vote twice in almost all states. Okay, so before we jump into the big national events today uh, with COVID nineteen and talking about. Uh, uh, our pandemic response. I wanted to talk a little bit and just check in with you, Greg, and, and discuss a little bit. We're all at Texas A&M and uh, Texas A&M has had students back as part of the fall. Um, there's been a lot of criticism both from us, uh, but also uh, in some of the national dialogue for universities uh, bringing students um, back to class uh, for the fall semester. How are things on campus? Uh, pretty dead. Not literally, and people aren't falling and dying on campus, but but things are very quiet. Certainly on our end of campus, uh, on the on the west side of campus, in the Allen Building where the Bush School is, things are very quiet. Both faculty and students are uh, complying with the university guidelines that you should come in, teach your classes, attend your classes, and then get out. Because as we know, 
it's perfectly safe to come into your class. But then the minute your class leaves, you should get out as fast as you can. So it's a, it's a weird semester. I mean, I've never, I was in the office the first two weeks, uh, as some of our listeners might remember. And just the fact that there were, there was no activity in the hallway. There was no, you know, all sorts of new students walking by. It has been a very weird semester. Yeah, uh, Christy, one of the things we uh, talked about um, is I think this is the first semester, first fall that I'm not actively in a classroom in person since I think I was five years old. I think it's the first, first one. I don't think I have ever not had, uh, never have not been showing up to classes in the fall. How is, how's your experience been around town and teaching, Christy? Around town. Well, other, I mean, I don't leave my house much, so there's not, there's not much around town to, to tell you about, but uh, teaching has been interesting. I definitely find teaching via Zoom harder. I feel like it's harder to connect with your students and really know if they're learning or if they're enjoying the class and um, if you're connecting with them. So it's been, di it's been different. It definitely has been different. So. Well, I saw just before we started, the university had released uh, records for the uh, random testing program. It does seem that the uh, evidence conditional on being back is that cases aren't um, uh, jumping up. We're still having a, a reasonable number that are being reported, but the random test showed the percentages to be uh, relatively low, I think around 2% or so, which is, uh, is encouraging. And hopefully that's good quality random sampling that gives us a good insight to where the student body is right now. Okay, well, so, uh, independent. So, so before you go on with your lies, damn lies, and statistics, <laughs> uh, the county's positivity rate hovers around 10%. And that has been consistent for the last, it's been months where the, the, the county's positivity rate has been around 10%. Now, it, it was much, much higher when Texas spiked up, but in Brazos County, where, where Texas A&M is located, there is, there is still a 10% positivity rate on tests, which Christy can tell us better than I can, but that I believe is in the red zone. Uh, that's, not, that's not a level that you want. So the fact that we're getting 2% positivity rate on uh, random testing on campus makes one wonder a bit about the random nature of those tests because my understanding is you did have to volunteer for them. And my guess is that if you had symptoms, if you were a student, you would not be volunteering because you wouldn't want to be sent off to the quarantine dorm or you wouldn't want to be banished from campus and made to quarantine if you were living off campus. So I, I, I just don't know. I'm very happy that those rates are, are, are low. It would have been a lot worse if they were high, but I look at the county data and, and I, I see fewer cases perhaps than there were two or three weeks ago when four weeks ago when students came in, but still a relatively high positivity rate uh, for the tests in the county. Christy, do you have any insight here on where the county level is and the school level? I, I uh, actually was not aware that there was such a gap between the positivity rate at the county level and at the school level. I don't know if that's anything you've been looking into, but uh, do you have any thoughts on that before we move on from it? I mean, I think for me, positivity rates are really something that you can't use by yourself. Um, I know that it's it's one of our, our main features, but it's so dependent on who you're testing, how many people you're testing. Um, well, I think it's a useful measure. I think relying solely on it, which is is what we've consistently done um, or have tended to do throughout the summer and fall here in the state of Texas is is a little bit, um, it doesn't provide you full information because if you're only testing symptomatic people who are likely to have it, you're going to have a higher positivity rate that's going to be false. And then if you're not doing very many tests, um, there's just a lot of ways that you can get inaccurate measures. So I, I always um, caution people to take positivity rates with kind of like a 
not a great assault, but just be aware that there are other things you need to look at to know how um, valuable positivity rate is. Great. I, I think we will come back to that when we get to our discussions of how the world is doing generally and how the U.S. fits in that and um, how maybe more generally how American universities and their responses compared to other places. Um, but before we do that, I, I wanted to highlight uh, one of the sad milestones that was in the news today, um, which is that the official death count for the U.S. reached 200,000. Uh, individuals today. And as I was, again, prepping for today, I came across an Associated Press article that I mentioned to Greg and Christy that I wanted to share. Um, and the headline is Unfathomable U.S. Death Toll from Coronavirus Hits 200,000. The U.S. Death Toll from the Coronavirus Top 200,000 uh, Tuesday, by far the highest in the world, hitting the once unimaginable threshold six weeks before an election that is certain to be a referendum in part on Pro President Donald J. President Donald Trump's handling of the crisis. Quote, it is completely unfathomable that we've reached this point, said Jennifer Nezzo, a Johns Hopkins University public health researcher, eight months after the scourge first reached the world's richest nation with its state-of-the-art uh, laboratories, top-flight scientists, and stockpiles of medical supplies. The number of dead is equivalent to a 9-11 attack every day for 67 days. It is roughly equal to the population of Salt Lake City or Huntsville, Alabama. And the quote from the president at the rally, I guess, two days ago, is that this is a, this is a number that affects virtually nobody, which is, is um, shocking, I think, assessment, given that we're reaching the 200,000 mark. And it seems, I mean, to be, I guess, generous towards it, just um, kind of obtuse. Um, but it it's uh, it seems like a pretty terrible way to describe 67, the equivalent of deaths from 67 9-11 attacks as it affects virtually nobody. Greg, 200,000, that feels like we've been yelling about this now since March about trying to have a better response. These numbers were going to hit hundreds of thousands. Um, I have to say it hit me pretty tough this afternoon after all kind of the chatter about it and uh, the, all the attempts to kind of delegitimize the numbers and dehumanize the deaths and play down the amount, uh, the degree to which this is impacting Americans everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's un-American, it's atrocious. I just, I'm having a really hard time with it today. It's a shame it's become politicized. I mean, I think that there are, you can imagine plenty of administrations in the past, Republicans and Democrats, that would have handled the entire approach to this very differently. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't have avoided all the deaths, that's for sure. I mean, this is a horrible virus, and Christy can talk more about it than I can. But, uh, yeah, I, I, if this is truly a referendum on the president, on his handling of this virus and he wins the election, that will say something about our country that I'm not sure I, uh, I would have realized four years ago. Because it, it just doesn't seem like he's done a good job. Yeah. Well, the piece that has come out since I think we spoke last too is just another example, I think, of bad and failed leadership is some of the conversation on the on the Woodward tapes um, where he's open about deliberately trying to mislead people so that they're not afraid um, and try to play it down and play it down and play it down. That's been his his strategy. It wasn't, you know, we talked about this in March, whether it was just an unawareness of what was going on with the virus or sort of more sinister than that. And I think these tapes really reveal that it's it's more sinister than that. It's, they knew that it was airborne. They knew that it was dangerous. And the attempts at kind of quelling it was for political gain. So I'm uh, much like a medieval flagellant. I am reading the Woodward book. Itself. Uh, I can't recommend it. It's horribly written. It's just, <laughs> it's just a series of vignettes 
for somebody who grew up in the Watergate era and, you know, Bob Woodward's name was, of course, the gold standard in journalism, uh, it, it's, it's not an interesting read and it basically just confirms what we've already known. Uh, you know, the money quotes you can read in the newspaper, you know, like uh, the, that early admission that the president knew how serious it was and but was going to play it down in order to avoid panic. You know, the ways played down other issues in order to avoid panic, you know, like we could go through all sorts of them, immigration, uh, urban yeah. violence, things like that, that he's played down in order to avoid panic. But uh yeah, I, I, so don't don't buy the book. Read your newspaper. You'll you'll learn everything you have to learn. And but if you really feel like you have to atone for your sins, some of our Jewish listeners coming up, it's Yom Kippur. If you, if you want to atone, or if you're just a good Catholic and feel like you have to flagellate yourself for your sins, yeah, sure, you can read Woodward's book. It, it's it's not fun reading. It's not good reading, and it's pretty depressing. Yeah, I um, I have to pick when to stare into the uh, the trauma because uh, and I do it I do it for the good of the podcast, Greg. Each week before we get here, I watch some clips, see what the president's been up to, uh, check back in to kind of the madness, and each tu- each Tuesday it leaves me sad. <laughs> you, you, your willingness to sacrifice yourself for the public good is admirable. <laughs> I will I will say as an antidote to it, I am. I am uh, kind of binge watching the entire corpus of the of the the sitcom The Office. Wow, very nice. And and very much enjoying going back into that '90s sitcom era with the with the the, the marvelous love story of Jim and Pam. So that's making. You should watch on Netflix. You should watch the Space Force comedy because I did. I did. Ah, oh, it's so good. I, I really did watch the Space it. Force comedy. Not nearly as good as The Office, and but John Malkovich is pretty funny. <laughs> so, uh, Christine, anything you have to add on this? I want to. I want to kind of shift to talking about how the U.S.'s response and numbers compare to what we're seeing from the rest of the world and things that we maybe know from uh, previous pandemics, lessons we should be taking with us in terms of what we could have anticipated from history, what we need to think about moving forward. But do you have anything on this before we move forward? I think it's uh, it's certainly a sad milestone. It, it is, yeah. Um, I would say back, back at the kind of beginning of this, I really didn't think we would I, I mean, I really thought that we had the tools not to reach this milestone. So the fact that we have reached it is very, um, very sad, I think. So with that, tell us about how countries have responded, what types of tools have they used to varying levels of success? Um, you know, you mentioned that the U.S. had better tools where we could have uh, maybe minimize the number of cases and the number of deaths per capita. Um, what do you, how do you see the picture? How is this playing out kind of on the global stage? Um, I mean, I think, I think there's been a lot a variety of responses from different countries and it's hard to make certain comparisons, right? Like New Zealand did a really good job, but they are also an island community. So it's, it's, you know, we have to be cautious with making those, but I think, Overall, the places that did the best were the ones that relied heavily on their public health experts and uh, put measures in place that were recommended to control the spread of the virus based on on the science known at the time. Um, So that said, I mean, places that were hit earlier definitely had um, higher death counts and struggled a lot more with the virus because we just didn't know anything about it at the beginning. So there is some advantage to countries that saw it later. Um, and even places in the United States, places that saw it later, there are some advantages as doctors learn how to help people when they're hospitalized. You have lower death rates of hospitalized patients and, and that sort of thing. Um, but fairly consistently, um, leaders that that uh, did not follow scientific and, and public health recommendations, um, have struggled with the virus. So, 
uh, we see that here in the United States, see that in Brazil, um, India is, is uh, having a growing number of infections right now. So I, I do think that's one of the major dividing lines and then testing capacity, I think is another one. So Germany did really well um, getting, uh, like ramping up testing because if you can't, if you don't test, um, you, you don't know where it is. So it makes it, it makes it a little bit more challenging. So I think those are kind of two, and, and quality testing. Again, I think I might have said this on the last podcast that I, I spoke to you guys, but quality testing, you can't just have tests um, if you're going to get a lot of false negatives and false positives. You have to have quality testing and a lot of quality testing. So what, what are public health experts uh, saying to governments uh, and to society right now? It feels like, you know, I think people get or feel like they get conflicting information. I know in the headlines this past week, uh, CDC changed its recommendations about something and there was, you know, uh, a lot uh, a lot of yelling about that. So what do you see as, and I know it, it varies from context, of course, but what, what are public health experts recommending that leaders should be following and which ones are they not kind of following that are that are leading generally to a failed effort? Um, so I guess I'll say like primarily I have been living in the world of, of the science and the academic journals, and that's somewhat of a self-preservation mechanism. Um, because over the summer I was reading, I was reading newspapers and I was reading the science, and it was just it was very uh intense. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So from the science perspective, we really, I mean, science is a process, right? You learn. So looking at it from that perspective, we have been learning and we have been moving forward. So when you talk about these conflicting messages in the science, I don't think there are that many conflicting messages. I think that is um, in the politics of the response. And so, you know, we know, we know a lot more about the virus and right now it's still the same things that we needed to do in March. It's still social distancing. It's still wearing masks. Um, it's still, you know, trying to be outdoors as much as possible if you're going to be around other people. Um, all of those things, we're getting just more data and, and further confirmation on how the virus works and how it attacks people and why some people have worse outcomes than other people. Um, so I would say, like, the science has been very consistent. And places who have implemented recommendations like maintaining social distancing, not reopening until community transmission has dropped under a certain level, which is not something that we did in the United States and is one of the reasons that cases spiked back up. But adhering to those kind of guidelines that we know from understanding how the virus works is gonna help maintain a level of transmission that's, that's low enough. You're not gonna eliminate it. So maintaining um, like it, uh, reducing risk I guess, is really the countries that have been most successful have aimed to reduce risk as much as possible. So, Christine, um, good. Why, why, why do you think some governments listen to their public health officials uh, and, and, and implement those recommendations more uh, comprehensively than others do? I think, I mean, I, from what I can tell, Governments with a more populist tendency and, and, you know, tend to have throughout this pandemic have had more of a pushback against science. So it's kind of like when we talked about in the United States and Brazil and India um, and a couple other places where there's uh, already kind of this established mistrust of science that's almost been amplified um, during the pandemic and made it harder for those recommendations to be put into practice and even in, when they are like here in the United States some places I've tried to do that the whole country isn't on board so then you have cases pop up in different areas and you can't really ever get it under control. Do you think it makes sense to talk about waves of, of the virus? I don't think that we've really completed our first wave here in the United States so originally we had talked about having you know the second wave in the fall. But I think given how everything went over the summer, we never really ended our first wave. So we're almost at this continuous plateau of high numbers of cases. We're still around, you know, seven, 800 case deaths 
um, a day. So, and it's just been pretty consistent. So yeah, I think, I don't think that at least in the United States, we're following the wave uh, model. How about Europe? I mean, it, it seems like, so, so it seems like many places in Europe, even those that had horrible death rates at the beginning, like Italy, you know, to, to, to use the famous phrase from the spring, crush the curve. Uh, but now cases are going back up in many of these places. Is it, is it useful to think of Europe as hitting a second wave? And, and is it useful for us to think of Europe as kind of our future? I mean, it, it, hit, it hit in Europe before it hit us. And it hit Europe pretty hard as it hit, you know, some parts of the United States pretty hard. Is Europe, is Europe a model either good or bad on this? Um, that's a good question. I, I think, I think the United States did structured our response so different from Europe. I don't think that we can really use Europe as a model for what's going to happen here. But if you think about how the virus works, then it is a good model. So if we had um, really strongly implemented our quarantines and our social distancing and brought our community transmission down, I think that we would have probably seen an increase as we started to open things up because that's just how this virus operates. Um, but given that we took a different path in our response than Europe did, I don't know if we can really look to them as what is in our future. I think there's definitely a chance that we could see increases, like another, I guess, spike in cases. Um, but we're already at such a higher plateau than Europe was. It's a little bit different. So what, what do the models suggest is the most likely... Um next steps so what do we uh, i haven't been looking at the models lately because it becomes too morbid to look at them every day at some point and i just can't do it um uh, but i know that we have a lot more data than when i was following very closely kind of what the expected cases were the expected death count what are the kind of uh, uh to the best of your knowledge sort of where the globe is on this and and the u.s i mean are we what, what are the projections moving forward? So um, I think in the U.S., you know, the worst case scenarios are looking at half a million deaths, 400,000 deaths by the end of the year. Um, and in other countries, I think the models, the like things that we originally thought have been surprising, right? Because we thought Africa was going to get hit really hard. And they've had a, a less severe, the continent has had a less severe outbreak than we had anticipated. And it's still determining, like, is that because the population is so young or not? So there's still all these factors. I think for the United States, the models really, like, really depend on what people do. There's emerging evidence of the impact of universal mask wearing and how it can um, lower essentially your inoculation rate and that that might be important for how severe your infection is when you get infected. And so again, it's like worst case scenario is, you know, 500,000 people if we continue to kind of do what we're doing now. But if we are able to make changes, then those models should change and those numbers should decrease. So um, I think like if you if you're looking at countries in Europe, if they implement similar, uh, it's all about the inputs, right? Like what are the inputs in the model as to how, how accurate they're going to be. But I think the problem is, is that the most important inputs are those social factors that we really don't have a lot of control over or know what's going to happen with. Greg, how is this, um, given that we need to change our behavior and that we're having a hard time doing it and given our general information consumptions, who, who benefits from us continuing to not pull out of, of COVID? Are there actors that might want to continue to spread misinformation generally, say, I don't know, on Facebook or Twitter that helps it make continue to be more difficult for Americans to 
kind of get the facts on the ground? Are there are there people benefiting from the fact that America's having a hard time getting its population together on this? Well, I guess if you manufacture masks, you're benefiting. Uh, but I, so I, I don't know, what's the lead in here? Are the Russian, I mean, are you talking about foreign actors who? who yeah, I'm talking about foreign actors. Like um, what's the, who, who benefits from the fact that we're struggling to get our act together that might continue, that might take advantage of that? So, I, you know, I'm profoundly suspicious of Kui Bono arguments. Just because somebody benefits doesn't mean they're doing it, right? Uh, I, I benefit from a nice day. doesn't mean that I, you know, personally stop the rain. Uh, so I, we have evidence, including a report today in the New York Times that the CIA has uh, found with, with uh, a moderate level of confidence that Russia is directly intervening in the 2020 election in order to try to help President Trump. Uh, so it's not as if foreign actors, and we also have evidence that China and Iran and perhaps some other foreign actors are trying to affect our election, but Russia most systematically and directly. And I would assume that, that you know, if you, have, if you have that capability to try to affect an election through information operations, you might also try to uh, encourage social division and, and the spread of disease in a country that you see as a rival. But you know, I don't, the president blames China for this. I don't want to blame Russia. I mean, you know, we have to look at ourselves as, as to why we haven't been able to handle this better. Uh, you know, the Chinese made all sorts of mistakes. Were they deliberate? Were they not deliberate? I have a funny feeling they weren't deliberate because there's plenty of people in China who died too. Uh, but I, I, I don't think anybody really, nobody in America benefits from this, right? I mean, everybody's suffering. Capital is suffering, labor is suffering, right? The right wing is suffering, the left wing is suffering. Everybody's suffering from this. It doesn't seem to me like there, you know, anybody has an interest in this. I mean, the, and the virus doesn't care about your politics, right? That's the bottom line. The virus, the virus doesn't pick a side. The virus is not pro-Russia. The virus is not pro-America. The virus is not Republican or Democratic. So I, I, it's not so much who benefits. It's, it's, it's clear that in a political season, people are going to try to take advantage. Look, I mean, you, you know, Justin, you and I tend to look at the president and say, oh, he's trying to take advantage of, of spreading fear and, and, and all. And it's because we don't like them. We would have voted against them without the, the pandemic. But Joe Biden is campaigning on the pandemic too, right? I would do better. His response is horrible. I would do better. So, I mean, both political parties are trying to take advantage of some of the consequences of this pandemic. And that's, that's just kind of natural, I think. I was just mostly giving you an opportunity to to give your international affairs analysis. Um, just, just trying to throw you a softball. I, I, and I whiffed on it, that's for sure. <laughs> if, I mean, but if you want the real international relations take on this, I think it's, it's this is a, 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 natural experiments are probably never exist, but this is a very interesting test of President Trump's uh, aversion to international institutions, right? He withdraws from the WHO, you know, after withdrawing from a number of other treaties and international institutions. He blames China uh, after, after a while of saying the Chinese are doing a good job while he was negotiating the trade deal. He now blames China for this. I just wonder how things, if things would look any different under an administration that said, we've got, to we've got to come together internationally. We have to use the WHO as a vehicle for international cooperation. 
Yeah, the Chinese made some uh, mistakes and maybe some intentional obfuscations early on, but we want to hold them to the rules of the WHO. The Chinese should be reporting, they should be cooperating. Would we be at 200,000 deaths right now? We can't tell. But I do think that the president's impulse that, you know, America first and America alone is being tested in, in a context where we're facing a virus that does not respect borders. And, and the thing that he, he most prides himself on now is closing the borders to China, closing the borders to Europe. This is an exaggeration, of course, but, but it gives you a sense of his mindset, right? If we could only close America in, right? Build that wall in the South, you know, threaten those horrible Canadians who are our enemies to the North and close off travel in our oceans, uh, then we would be able to handle this virus better. The alternative is this virus doesn't care about walls and it doesn't care about border closings. And that uh, what we really need to do is double down on international cooperation, even with people who we might suspect didn't handle this particularly well at the beginning like the Chinese. That to me is kind of the real bottom line on the international element of this. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the logic is, is pretty clear. We talked about it with Raymond last week. I think uh, Christy, or two weeks ago, I think Christy could confirm, but, and then I see this in the uh, thinking about uh, social media and data and machine learning. Now, these aren't one nation countries. <laughs> And if you try to apply a one uh, nation us first solution to a global coordination problem, you end up with suboptimal outcomes. Um, it's not, doesn't seem like it should be that complicated that these are times when we would need to be uh, engaging more fully in an international coordinating way rather than withdrawing because so many of our problems are international in scope. Christy, I was wondering, you know, you mentioned that we kind of have the, I guess the the power to change whether the whether the deaths at the end of the year are four or five hundred thousand or whether they're they're they come down from there and the countries that have had the most success are following public health experts. Are you aware of any of research on how do we encourage people, our fellow citizens, to to behave better? I guess or to be more considerate of those around them, given that they could be spreading the virus. Um, how do we, are there, what can we do to help convince others that, you know, wearing a mask and keeping your distance is, is being, is being American. It is looking out for your fellow person. Is there, do we have any guidance on that from the public health literature? Um, I mean, I think, so the first thing I want to say is I actually think this is a lot more complicated than it was several months ago, right? Because I think the divisiveness that has occurred over the last couple months, especially turning, you know, mask wearing into a political statement um, and the erosion of trust in the CDC, I think, you know, you, that going back and forth, it's really hurt us in our ability to get people, even people who generally would trust in science or trust in the public health messaging. I think we have an even greater uphill battle at, at this point because of those things. So that's very um, unfortunate. I think in general, when we talk about how you, how you change behavior involving health, especially if you're working at a community level, it really does involve having whoever those community members trust telling them to do certain things. And so like we can come out, we can have Dr. Fauci come out and say, you need to do this. But in some communities, it might be more effective if that person's priest says it to them during mass or something like that. And that we find that very consistently that if it's coming from a known and trusted source, people will be more willing to follow the recommendations that they're given. Even if they don't really necessarily 100% agree with them, they'll be like, okay, this person told me I should do it. I trust them. I think they have their my best interests in mind, so I'm going to do it. Um, and so I think that when you have, when you need that kind of effort at a national level and you've had so much um, effort put into dividing people and politicizing things that really shouldn't be political issues, um, it just is making that 
just a lot harder to accomplish. So Christy, who, who bears responsibility for the CDC's loss of credibility here? I mean, we, they seem to be, I mean, even now, right? They put up a, a, a guidance that says this is a aerosol born virus and then they take it down two days later. I mean, it just seems like even setting aside the president's tendency to criticize people who don't follow his line, why isn't there a more consistent voice within the CDC itself? Um, for the for this pandemic, I really ha I really can't say, but I know that there always has been a CDC spokesperson in past pandemics and past disease outbreaks. There has been a spokesperson, and there's been regular um, press conferences where the CDC is an authority and informs the public. Um, so, given given the uh, movement away from the way that the CDC has has operated. And again, this is like my guess or my opinion is that it's probably due to political pressure because I remember when the CDC guidelines came out a little while ago, the ones that got all the attention because some of them were reversed. I remember reading them and then I read the references that were cited for some of the recommendations and those studies weren't even saying what the CDC guidelines were saying. And I remember to talking to someone and be like this, because I read the guidelines and I said, these guidelines, most, some of these don't make any sense. And then I read the studies that were supposed to support that recommendation and the studies didn't support those things. And so um, I, I feel strongly that scientists within the CDC are smart enough to know that. So my assumption would be that it's coming from something outside the CDC. I don't wanna point fingers as to who that is. Um, but with the aerosol transmission, there is growing evidence that that is the case. Um, so that would be an accurate recommendation. And so as to why it was taken down, um, based on the research I've read, that was that should have been put up. So I don't, I can't speak to why. The lesson here is always check the footnotes. Yes, yeah, it is. <laughs> or make sure you have good leadership. Um, that's the other, that's the other takeaway. <laughs> I mean, that is a good point that when you guys were talking about international cooperation, you know, the U.S. hasn't even signed on to COVAX, which is that international collaborative to make sure everyone gets vaccines. And so we are really just doing this um, alone. And we turned down test kits from WHO at the very beginning, which is why the CDC had the failed test kits in the first place. I mean, they didn't put them together properly, but if we had taken WHO test kits, that wouldn't have been a problem. So, yeah. Sorry. Well, there. America first. <laughs> well, it's just repeated. I mean, Greg and I have been talking about it regularly since we chatted with you last. I mean, my thing is public management, public organizations, why, how administration works, what things impact it. And I mean, this is, it's just failed leadership throughout and it's attempts at thwarting things from appointments at the very top of the executive level in these things from an organizational analysis, sometimes it's incompetence, which is what we've speculated about some of these occurrences, trying to give benefit of the doubt, but a pattern's a pattern. These things seem to be systematically biased in certain directions, and those are discrediting, discrediting science, those are trying to uh, uh, undermine uh, voting methods and elections, that's dehumanizing immigrants at the at the border and throughout the country. I mean, these are kind of systematic attempts from who's appointed to the leadership of them to disrupt the way in which those organizations do business. On the other hand, when I think of the CDC and Dr. Redfield, I, I more feel sorry for him. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't seem to be able to get a handle on the organization, uh, which is why we see these, you know, these back and forth things. And, and perhaps there's political pressure, but you know, a leader of his stature who, let's face it, I don't think can be fired uh, in the midst of this, at least without serious political damage to the president, you know, needs to, you know, have a bit of a stiffer spine in how his agency reacts to what is the greatest public health crisis in a hundred years. Well, that's the leadership piece, right? I mean, how 
if you have qualified, strong leaders at the tops of these organizations and you, you encourage them to make the best qualified decisions, you're in a different place than we are. Um, we're in a completely different kind of political atmosphere from what they probably believe, what they believe the expectations to be coming from the president and the types of people who are appointed to lead the organizations. Um, but I mean, failed leadership is everywhere. And in people's defense, it was hard, right? We haven't had a pandemic in a hundred years. Um, but as we've you know mentioned multiple times, it seems like there were lots of opportunities for people in leadership to lead lead early and often and save lives. And um, we, ha we have lots of examples of failed uh, opportunities coming from the president all the way, all the way down to our local organizations. But I do want to correct, we have had a lot of pandemics in the last hundred years. So oh, we've had point. two, I mean, <laughs> yeah, so we've had, yeah. had several times to learn, several opportunities to learn. So what, yeah. What would you list as the pandemics? Most recent one would be 2009. Before that would be SARS 2003. Then I would say, oh, um, HIV AIDS was a pandemic. Um, then before that, there were two flu pandemics, 1963 and 1957. Um, and then- What was the, remind me, the 2009 was- H1N1, it was a- H1N1. It infected an estimated 2 billion people, actually. So it's pretty, luckily it was not that deadly. So we dodged a bullet there. Well, all the more reason that leadership should be able to respond uh, better uh, than they have, <laughs> given that we should have some time to preparation. And there are lots of people like you who were studying this um, as part of what they were doing before uh, the, the madness of this, uh, of this particular pandemic. Before we get off the credibility issue, can I ask you about vaccines? Because I, I mean, it seems to me that we are in a position where um, I, I'm not a, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm the opposite of an anti-vaxxer, but I'm not going to be lining up for the first dose of a vaccine that gets announced on election day. Uh, I'll wait for Ivanka to have hers. Uh, but I, I, what can we do to reassure people about the reliability of the vaccine process? Um, I, think, I, I think you have a really good point because I know a lot of people who are very strong vaccination proponents who are like, I'm not sure if I would get this vaccine because there has been so little transparency. I think Pharmaceutical companies have sort of tried to remedy it by releasing their data, which they weren't doing before. Um, but you know who that helps that may, maybe makes me feel better. But like for the average person, that's not going to go through their clinical study data. It might not. Um, it not, might not make them feel better. And then you have this kind of. Um, there was a really good paper written on the the Russian trolls actually in the part of the anti-vaccine movement. They're doing both sides. So they're trying to amplify both the pro-vaccine and the anti-vaccine movement. So you already have people who are just not really sure what's going on. I think um, the, the best thing we can do is just try to publicize, you know, what the data is, what adverse reactions, what percentages in a way that's digestible for the average person. And um, we can always compare those to vaccines that we're really familiar with. So whether it's the MMR vaccine or um, polio vaccine or something, something that every child gets when they're young, kind of comparing those um, side effects and adverse outcomes to show people that like it's as a safety comparison, it might be helpful. But um, yeah, I think it's a, I think that's another hard one. But, we have like a year that probably won't be available to us for about a year. So. Oh, I can't wait for next summer. It'll be like this summer, me sitting in my house. <laughs> so much good news we have this evening. Um, Christy, is, is there anything that um, you being our 
resident public health experts for the podcast. Is there anything that you would like to say to the audience that we haven't covered already that you think would help uh, help us handle um, the response to COVID-19? And, and congratulations for being the official public health expert of the podcast. Thank she you. Is. I feel very special right now. I'm like, I'm our official public health expert of the Whistle podcast. That's right. Uh, um, I mean, I, I would first I would say I know that this is really hard, like even myself, someone who feels, you know, my background in pandemics gives me kind of maybe a false sense of control and understanding and minimizes my anxiety um, to everything that's going on. But even with that, I still feel kind of there are days where you get up and it's just worse than the day before. And you kind of have that like helpless, like feel, <laughs> feeling, which I'm sure we all felt. So. Um, I know that that has to weigh on people and all of the listeners, but really the only thing that we can do right now, you know, without that you can do, because we don't have control over what our leaders choose to do. So what you can do is continue to social distance as much as possible, wear your mask everywhere that you go and um, just try to avoid all like non-necessary indoor activity in particular, because that's your that's going to be your highest risk setting. So, you know, we have a lot of, um, uh, and I don't want to say like, I don't want to say anything about not going to restaurants or that sort of thing, but remember that if you have your mask off and you're in an indoor setting, you are at high risk of transmission, even if it's less capacity and that sort of thing. So if you can avoid those kind of settings, you will be able to keep yourself safer. It is okay for me to go to the liquor store with my mask on, right? Of course, yeah. You can do it outside, though, so they can bring it out to you. You can order online. I, I, I like to look at the bottles. <laughs> well, um, that's very helpful. Thanks, Christy. I, um, I, I, I needed to hear that. I have about reached my end of not wanting to sit in a restaurant. Uh, we have not been inside a restaurant since March to eat. Uh, only a few patios and takeouts. Um, so that was, the, that was the encouragement I needed to hear as we were entering in month six or seven of this. Um, so um, thanks for that. Greg, you have anything uh, that you would like to add? Well, I think in two weeks, we might have some stuff to talk about. You know, there's this Supreme Court thing that is kind of in the news that might be interesting for us to reflect on. And uh, we will have had, I think, the first presidential debate, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that next week? It it's soon. Time? It's sometime in September. Okay, okay. And, uh, and so we, we might have a few topics that we can uh, bat around next, uh, next time we meet two weeks from now. Yep, October 6th uh, will be our next recording. We'll be live again here on uh, on YouTube. Join us. Um, I'll try to remember next time to tell people they can ask questions. Um, so we'll get some live questions uh, again. Um, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Christine Blackburn, for being with us this evening and giving us an update on COVID. Um, although I think sometimes it's hard to uh, wrap our minds around it and still want to kind of look at what's going on. I, I do think it's important that people remember we are still in the middle of a pandemic and you need to do what you can to, uh, to help us all out by wearing your masks and uh, keeping your distance and staying outside of uh, indoor gatherings where possible. Um, so it's good to see you all. Uh, thanks so much. We'll be back in two weeks and uh, yeah, take care.